I'd ask you to stand with me. We're going to read from Exodus 25 this evening. We're going to read Exodus 25, verses 1 to 15. This is going to introduce the entire passage, the passage we're looking at, chapters 25 to 31. Exodus 25 to 15, 1 to 15 introduces the section, shows the Israelites how to build the tabernacle. Then from there, we're going to jump to chapter 28, verses 1 to 5 showing how to clothe the priests who work in that tabernacle. Exodus 25, verses 1 to 15. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furnitures, so you shall make of it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. And then moving to chapter 28, verses 1 to 5. God says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that you shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us before we jump in this evening. 
God, we are here, your body, your temple on earth. We know that you dwell among us, and I pray, Father, that you would move among us tonight. Show us your glory in this passage, and pray that you would conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Fill us with joy in who you are and what you have done in him and in us through it. pray this in his name. Amen. So a question that I had this week when I was getting this ready was I wonder how many Christians, since this, since this has been written, have gotten to the second half of the book of Exodus and wondered what exactly is going on here. The first half of the book of Exodus, chapters 1 to 18, just fly by. I mean, it's the, the title of the book. It's the Exodus event itself. God is saving, God is rescuing his people in glorious, majestic, memorable ways out of slavery in Egypt. And in chapters 19 and 20, and then 21 through 24, God is coming down to Mount Sinai. He's he's making, he's confirming a covenant with this nation, with Moses. And you see, again, memorable Science got coming down in thunder and in power, and it's just very clear what we're learning about him. And then, then chapters 25 to 31 begin. And what we see there is in, to, probably to, to many Westerners, it, it feels as though the book is just sort of grinding to a halt. Uh, we, we see seven chapters of a blueprint of a temple of exactly what should go inside of it, exactly how many cubits, how many feet the, the furnishing should be of it, exactly how they should be overlaid with gold, exactly what the priests should be wearing when they're on the inside. Slightly more confusing. It, even, even further, the, the back half of it is going to repeat these same chapters, the, these exact same instructions just as they're being built itself. Um, so, so I'm not going to confirm or deny whether I was like one of these Christians at, at some point when I was beginning the study of these chapters who, who, who read it and said, I get exactly why God had it for them then. I mean, they had to build it. They had to know exactly how long, how many cubits it should be. They had to know exactly what it should be overlaid with. But what exactly is the point for us Today, is, is there something that we could say about that? And as I thought about it, likely perhaps because the holiday season is coming up, I actually thought of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So if you were, if you were in Bethlehem on the night that Jesus was born, and you walked by the house where he was born, what would you see? Well, at, at, at a first glance, just casually walking by, what you would see is a human baby. It wouldn't look overly glorious. It wouldn't look supernatural. Same thing would happen if you were in Nazareth as Jesus was being raised up. You you wouldn't see anything out of the ordinary. There was nothing about his appearance that would draw people to him. It was just a normal human baby, or so it would seem on first glance. And, and, and that's because th- there is a theme throughout Scripture. The way that God works is at times God, in his wisdom, chooses to hide his glory at first glance 
because this same Jesus who was born, who you wouldn't take a second look at in Bethlehem, was the same God incarnate that came down at Sinai. The, the same Jesus who on the Mount of the Transfiguration was so glorious, or, or in, his, in his images in Revelation, uh, John, if you saw those, would be so glorious that you would fall to your, on your face in worship. This same God veiled his glory. And, and I think he actually does this to draw out our faith in chapters like this that, that can seem, at first glance, dry, slow, difficult uh, to read in that way. So, so what I hope to do tonight with us is to unpack some of that glory, some of that beauty that God has for us tonight in Exodus 25 to 31. And what, what I want to show us is this. Exodus 25 to 31 point us to the fullness of God's presence that we enjoy now in Christ. And it's going to do that in two ways. So, so it's kind of like an arrow. It's actually pointing outside of itself. It's pointing to us as Christians today. Uh, it's pointing us to the fullness of, of the presence that we enjoy in Christ right now. Uh, and it does that in two ways. First, it shows God's desire for presence with his people. And then secondly, it highlights an obstacle to that presence in his people. So, so the first thing that he's doing it highlights God's desire for presence with his people. So it, it would be easy to skip over in a section about the blueprint of this temple, of God's house itself, in looking at all the intricate detail to notice the first thing that it actually tells us, and that's in verse 8. So if you have your Bibles open, look with me at Exodus 25, verse 8, and what it shows us before the features of the house itself is it shows us the location of the house, or specifically the neighbors of God's house. God says, and let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. And what that verse says is that the, the God who created this world has come down to dwell in the midst of his people, the location of it. And this neighborhood itself, this neighborhood that, that now looks like an Israelite camp, which is a large circle with all the tribes kind of on the outside and God himself in a tent in the very center of it, is in a wilderness near Mount Sinai. Uh, and the important thing for us to know about that, the location of it itself, uh, is that it's outside of Egypt. Obviously, if you've been coming this week, so if, you just, if you're a Christian, you, you read the book, the title itself, the book of Exodus, and you realize God has already drawn his people out from Egypt. And we see, um, and, and look with me, if you do have your Bibles as well, we won't be flipping around too much this evening, but look at Exodus 29, 45, and 46, because with 25, 8, Exodus 29, 45, and 46, we'll tie us to a central theme of this passage tonight. It's going to show us the very purpose of the Exodus itself. Far from being a slow section at the end that's just tagged onto this book, these sections actually point us to the very goal of the Exodus. What God writes there, starting in verse 45, is this, I will dwell among the people of Israel. 
and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. They were saved from Egypt so that they could live with their God. And I want you to know that you as a Christian today, what you just read is not simply a historical verse that's, re- that's recounting the purpose for God's exodus of his people 3,500 years ago. It's a summary of your life. So like the Israelites, we were enslaved, not to Pharaoh, but to sin. And Christ frees us on Passover weekend so that he could dwell in our midst. What the New Testament teaches us is that right now, we are God's holy temple, that he has come, that he has come to dwell in our midst in a special way, to have fellowship with us, as the songs that we just sang reminded us. This salvation that God offers his people, it's not just a salvation from something. It's not just a negative salvation. You, you can often think of salvation focusing on what we were saved from. We were, fr- we were saved from eternal damnation. We were saved from a sin that enslaves us. But this salvation is also and consistently a positive salvation. It's a salvation to something. God is saving us, just like the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt to his presence We're saved from the sin that binds us to God's very family, to a relationship with him, to his very presence. This is why one theologian, uh, picking up on this theme of God's presence, has actually said it in a very helpful way, that God's saving presence is always meant to drive us to his relational presence. That we as Christians, having been saved on the cross by Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, have been brought into relationship and fellowship, full freedom with the God of this universe. And I think think the proper response to this is Psalm 8. Uh, It's very similarly to Psalm 8, where David is just looking at the sky. He's looking at God's majesty itself. And he says, what is man that you're mindful of? of him. I think we as Christians could very similarly say, looking at the glory of God on Sinai, looking at our sinfulness itself, that we can say, what are you? Not only that you would just be mindful of us, but that you would come to dwell in our midst, that you would have a relationship, that you would seek this out with us itself. So that's the first thing. First thing that Exodus 25 to 31 is highlighting and its main theme is that God is desiring, God is coming for the first time since Eden to dwell in the midst of his people. The second thing it shows us is the obstacle to that presence. Because if you're a careful reader of this passage, if you had read it fairly recently, what you would notice is that there's something wrong. There's something very clearly wrong wrong in this relationship if you, if you read these things at all. You, you would see that God is present with his people, um, but you would notice something that's different, especially if you had the theme 
the storyline of, of God's presence in Scripture with you in, in your head. So, so the theme of presence with God begins in the Garden of Eden. There, God is dwelling with Adam and Eve, full presence. He's with them, talking face to face. But of course, Genesis 3, they sin, and what happens? What happens to them? They're kicked out of the garden. It's a picture, the, the relationship with God is broken. They're no longer walking with him. They're no longer talking with him face to face. There's something wrong. In this house, again, first thing that you notice is that God is, God's restoring that. But in everything about the house, what God is doing is he's, he's still highlighting that sin that's within them, and he's highlighting his own holiness. So, so homes often have themes in them. Some homes would have a minimalistic theme to them. Some homes might have a French theme. Some homes might have a country theme to them. The, the, the tabernacle itself has the theme that runs through everything about it. It's the theme of God's holiness and our unworthiness itself. So, so you can see that in so many different ways. You see it in the layout itself. The tabernacle that was set up that God asked them to build has a house with a courtyard on the outside of it. And if you're a normal Israelite, that courtyard is as far in as you ever go. You can go inside of the the linen that sets up into the courtyard, but you can't go inside the house. You could pray, you could offer sacrifices, you could watch others offer sacrifices, but you can't go in itself. Only the priests go in. So, So every time you go into the presence into the house of God. You're just noticing that there's, there's a point at which I can't go any further at all. But even the priests who go inside the house, they notice the exact same thing, that I can't go further at all. Because the house itself has two rooms. There's the most holy place, a perfect cube, 15 feet all around, that's separated by a veil from the other room, which is the holy place. There in the holy place, there are some furnishings. The priests could go there, but every time that they would walk in, they would see the veil, and they would again notice, I can't go further. The only person who could go further was the high priest on the Day of Atonement once a year, and at that point, just to offer a blood sacrifice. The, the very layout of this house just screams that we that, that these people are sinful, that God himself is holy. You also see it just in the furnishings itself. Uh, so, so the furnishings inside of that, that holy room, it might look like a normal house on one hand. There's a lampstand, cast light. Probably most houses had that. There's a table with bread on it. Most houses would have a dinner table. In it. But these, these things, they're, they're, they're not just wood. They're covered in gold. They're glorious that it lists. It's just highlighting the majesty of the one who lives inside of this house. And if you notice, uh, when I read in verses 9 to 15 uh, of chapter uh, 10 to 15 of chapter 25, all of the furniture pieces have these rings on them which again is a highlighting of actually of God's holiness because the rings themselves were, were four poles that were, that were put through so that this tabernacle 
this, this mobile house of God, just like a tent, as it was moved, the priests were reminded that they, these things are so holy we can't even touch them. The furnishings themselves are pointing to God's holiness and our sinfulness. And then there, there were just multiple other things. We can't go through all of them, but just one other was there was a bronze basin right on the outside of this tabernacle for the priests to go in. What you would always notice if you were an Israelite was that they always washed. Every single time they washed because they knew as, as they were taught here, if they entered God's house without washing, they were killed on the spot immediately. This isn't a normal welcome mat that, that comes in. There is, a, there is a distance that God is intentionally showing because of the sin of his people. And biggest of all, uh, you would just notice an, an altar. The first thing that you would notice if you walked into this courtyard is a huge bronze altar. And on it, this is the exact place that you would come, that you would bring your animals to sacrifice. And on that sacrifice itself, laying your hands on the animal's head, showing your guilt, your sin imputed to it before the priest killed it. So, so the very thing that you would do in this temple over and over and over would just remind you of your sinfulness and of God's holiness. So, so that's the experience of the Israelites in the tabernacle. On the one hand, what an incredible privilege that God would dwell in their midst, that you could meet him there in a special way that none of the other nations had, that you had access to him. But on the other hand, that God is holy and that we are not. But I said at the beginning that this passage in these two steps points us forward to the enjoyment of the presence that we have in Jesus Christ. And here's how it does it. This theme of presence, we've thought about it, starting in Eden, where God is walking with his people, talking with them face to face. After Eden, there's a break. He comes down now in the tabernacle itself, but again, noticing that the holidays are coming up, what we celebrate every year is the continuation of this theme of God's presence, of which the tabernacle itself is a major episode. It's why John, picking up on this theme of God dwelling with his people, says that Christ pitched his tent among us. Literally, that he tabernacled among us. Prior to that point, Regardless of how many offerings you brought as an Israelite, week after week, month after month, regardless of how perfect some of those rams were, you were never actually cleansed from sin. So you could never go to the inside of the holy place. But this is why the gospel writers point out that when Christ died, the veil was torn in two. Until Christ the Lamb of God, the perfect priest came and died the perfect death because of his perfect life. Until then, no, only the outside was cleansed. Until Christ came, he, when Christ came, he cleansed our consciences, made us truly clean, which is why the author of Hebrews 
picking up on this theme, says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, let us draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The access to God that we have in Christ is full. It is not the the point of the tabernacle itself. The point of this picture of not entering in is to show us that we can enter into the very presence of God anytime we want as Christians. The point of showing how sinful the Israelites were were to show us how clean we are through the sacrifice of Christ. Christian, do not base your relationship with God on your merits or your actions day in and day out. Look to the blood of Jesus Christ. Look to his cleansing power and know that you have full access and full and the full love of God because of him. And it only gets better. I'm going to end with this. The very last chapter in the Bible, the second to last chapter in the Bible, picks up on this theme of presence that we have with God that shows it's only going to get fuller, it's only going to get better. John writes this, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell among them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we we praise you and we thank you that you are coming to dwell in our midst. We thank you that your desire to be with your people your desire for fellowship with your people overcame the obstacle, overcame the sin that was inside of us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your glory that was pictured in these mysterious ways, in these, in these chapters that can be often confusing, that can seem dry to us. Father, we, we praise you for that. We thank you for the picture and the foundation that you set. Father, we pray that you would come into your temple, into us tonight, into us this week, you would remind us of the access that we have and that we would live with the confidence and the joy of being children of God with full access to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.